Welcome to the podcast from Beirut to Baghdad, Konrad's journey through the Middle East, an audio cast by the Konrad Adenauer Foundation Syria, Iraq office from Beirut. My name is David Labude, and today I would like to take a look at Syria 10 years into the uprising. I want to discuss different legal aspects, such as the prosecution of war crimes, and I would like to know why armed opposition groups are interested in legal advice. Further, we will discuss the topic of sanctions imposed on the Syrian regime and why they did not fulfill their hope for results yet. To get a better understanding of the situation, I'm joined today by Ibrahim Olabi, a human rights activist and lawyer. Welcome to the podcast. Ibrahim, could you give us an overview of your conducted activities and work in Syria throughout the last 10 years? Sure, David. First of all, thank you for uh, for, for having me. Um, as you know, Syria has been described by many as one of the biggest stains on all the kind of human rights conventions uh, that you know the Western world got got to uh, to life. Um, so when the kind of uprising started, the peaceful uprising started in 2011. Obviously, that was part of the Arab Spring. And being originally from from Syria, I was kind of very interested in being able to do something and to assist. Um, I was very young at the time. I was still Uh, 18 at the time and I was doing my, uh, you know, international baccalaureate. But nevertheless, I, I got involved in the first kind of conference uh, that um, kind of spoke against the regime in, in Istanbul and then in, 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 in Brussels, which is not very advisable to any kind of high school student, I must say, through your uh, uh, podcast. Um, but the, the idea was, you know, I wanted to help in whatever way I, I, uh, I can. And um, when I went to university, the first thing that I started to do is because of just my languages, I started jumping up and down from the UK to uh, uh, to Syria and I was studying law at the time in the UK so um I was jumping up and down into Syria to try and get journalists in and out of the country to report on the atrocities that was uh, that, that was happening, uh, that were happening there. And uh, that obviously, uh, you know, journalists, as you know, they would like to get very close to the kind of front lines. Uh, and so that introduced me to the, a lot of the combatants uh, uh, in Syria. And when I came back to the UK, uh, you know, I was studying as part of my modules, the laws of armed conflict, international humanitarian law and so on. And so I decided to kind of start this project where I advocate with different armed groups, the need for compliance uh, with international humanitarian law. So that was the kind of the first journey in 2012, 2013. Uh, and ever since kind of when I came back to the UK, I set up this project as an organization. Now the Syrian Legal Development Program, which is funded by multiple countries, we're a team of 12 doing a lot of human rights work. Uh, on Syria, on kind of business actors, financial crimes, sanctions, empowering victim groups, organizations with international law knowledge, so it's purely Syria focused. But I also managed to finish my law degree and I got my master's and I also qualified as a barrister, uh, which is kind of an uh, advocate lawyer in the UK. And I joined the chambers called Guernica 37. And through that, I also do legal work on, on Syria. Now we're involved with uh, the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court and, and, uh, and, and so on. Um, so a lot of kind of human rights led work. I also consulted for the United Nations for a bit and the International Bar Association. But so far for the last 10 years, most of my work has been human rights, uh, legal, Syria focused in order to be able to do something for the people that are suffering in my home country. That's an impressive amount of work and uh, different projects that, that you have done. Let me ask you, when you started your activism on Syria and in Syria, what were your motivations and hopes and expectations back in 2011? 
I mean, you're, you're asking me this question on a very kind of sensitive date because today is the 15th of, uh, of March and it's the anniversary of, you know, the Syrian uprising. And the motivations were simple. It was try and do something that I would hope make a difference to the people in Syria uh, using whatever privileges I have. I'm, I'm part of the school of thought that, should, that you know, believes in that you should not shy away from your privileges, but you should use them in order to assist those that are not privileged. So either it's my language or my citizenship or my education and, and, and so on. So, you know, wanting to do something in, in Syria as, a, as an 18 year old, this is, this is how it started. The fact that this then became a career and I was able to kind of get awards on top of it and set up an organization and, and, and a lot of this, you know, by all means is a byproduct of the initial motivations and the initial the initial intentions it was never the goal you know i would uh, prior to syria i was going down the corporate law i interned in corporate law firms in different countries and that was kind of you know i come from a business family myself so it wasn't money uh, either where we, we were kind of pretty well off where, where we were uh, my father was uh, my late father was uh, was a businessman and so it wasn't either money nor career uh, but it was solely driven by seeing the suffering of people and the torture of people. And I, and those videos that I saw in the early days still resonate with me today. You have mentioned your legal advocacy work with rebel groups. What incentives did they have to listen to you and comply with international law, especially given that the other side, which is the Assad regime, is acting lawless? It, it's precisely that, in order to distinguish themselves from the lawlessness. Right. In order to say, look, we're different. Look, we're abiding by these things. Um, every so, so some groups, I mean, you can have motivations on a group level or you can have motivations on an individual level. Right. So at, at the end, these things, not torturing civilians and not targeting them and not putting mines in civilian populated areas. You don't need a genius to tell you these things. Right. They're, they're human instincts. And that's why they're called humanitarian laws. Um, or the laws of armed conflict. Uh, and therefore, a lot of people did not actually know the details of how these things worked. And they wanted to to learn in order to prevent suffering. You know, so, for example, I remember something specific, uh, you know, that using a certain amount of ammunition, uh, a certain weight of ammunition is illegal if it's below a certain weight, not above a certain weight. And that might sound counterproductive because above a certain weight is does more damage. But they did not know that below a certain weight, that projectile might not explode and therefore you might not able to see it and therefore a child could, could you know, uh, get damaged by it. So that is not something that you would know. You, you'd think, you know, smaller is better, but but that wasn't the case. Um, some people have personal motivations, reputational motivations, financial motivations from the states that were supporting them, um, you know, religious motivations. They, they think, you know, uh, a lot of them thought that this is compliant with, with Islamic law and they shouldn't be killing or affecting civilians. And so people had different motivations and it was important for me to shed light on all these benefits that they would get in order to be able to grab more and more interest, which I must say as a kind of 19, 20 year old at the time with no electricity in Aleppo and using flip charts was not the easiest thing to do, but uh, they were actually pretty receptive because they thought, okay, this guy has left the UK, he holds a foreign citizenship and he's here with us under barrel bombs from the Assad regime together, then whatever he's got to say must be important. So we must listen to him. That sounds quite adventurous. I mean, uh, imagining you uh, in the age of 19 doing these legal workshops for, for rebel groups. 
I remember when I was at that age, I had uh, different things in mind. Um, but do you know, I mean, you are now involved in, in other works and in, in projects. Do you know if there is groups currently doing these trainings like on international law for opposition uh, groups, armed groups perhaps as well in Syria? Um, I mean, the main group uh, that usually does this work is an organization called Geneva Call. From the name, you can guess which city they're based in. And what, um, you know, they're, they're, in, they're a group that focuses solely on engaging with non-state actors to improve compliance with international humanitarian law. Yes, so, so there are groups that do that. Uh, but I was also kind of, it was nice to see that, you know, some of the armed groups also started having legal advisors within their ranks um, and started doing trainings on these things. Obviously, violations still continue um, and we press very hard that these violations need to be held to account by the different groups. But we are no longer just focusing on this issue. We've, we've branched out to a lot of other areas that we think are, are kind of our strong points, be it on the field, Uh, or uh, with policymakers uh, as, as the Syrian Legal Development Program. Um, and I myself are also doing other kind of more court-based uh, and legal projects. So for me, it was always, David, that um, I always reflect about where can I help best, right? And, uh, mm -hmm. and once there's an organization or someone who can do what I'm doing uh, and they can might even do it better, then this is actually a good sign for me to move on and do something else where there is a niche and we've done so many i have so many examples of that where i managed to trigger interest in an area got people involved built their capacity and was very proud of that and moved on to something else and you have mentioned also your legal projects at the moment if i'm not mistaken you are also in close collabor collaboration now with the ICC, that is the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Could you elaborate on that and also why The Hague is, for example, not investigating war crimes and torture in Syria? Sure. So, um, you know, as, as you know, in order for the International Criminal Court to have jurisdiction over Syria, Syria needs to either ratify it, uh, the Rome Statute, and accept its jurisdiction, Uh, or it needs to get a referral from the Security Council. And in, I think, 2015 or 14, there was, from what I remember, a Swiss initiative that wanted to get the Security Council to refer Syria to the International Criminal Court against all perpetrators. This wasn't something against one party or the other. But what happened is that this got hit by a, rubble, uh, a double Russian-Chinese veto, and so that referral did not work. But the chambers that I'm part of in a completely different context, so Guernica 37, my chamber, is in a, in a different context, in the context of the Rohingya and Myanmar crisis, uh, was part of a group that wrote to the International Criminal Court saying that you should consider jurisdiction, even if the country that is not uh, is not signatory to, to the Rome Statute, if people were forcedly deported to a country that is part of the Rome Statute. So then in that case, Myanmar was not signatory, Bangladesh was, and people moved from Myanmar to Bangladesh. Uh, and so the court agreed with our chambers and actually accepted jurisdiction. And our chambers raised Syria in the submission to say this could happen in Syria as well, because Syria is not party. Jordan, a neighboring country, is party. And a lot of people, we argue, have been forcedly deported from country A, Syria, not signatory, to country B, Jordan, which is which is, which is a signatory. Uh, and so we've been kind of communicating with the ICC to try and get them to open and accept jurisdiction over the crimes that are involved, um, uh, that, that led people to be forced to deported from Syria. But I'm also now acting as part of the legal team 
for the government of the Netherlands on a case that might end up in the International Court of Justice, where the Netherlands and now Canada, actually, in the last week, it was good to see that Canada has also joined the Netherlands in holding Syria to account over a treaty it voluntarily accepted, the treaty against uh, or the Convention Against Torture. And in that convention, if you do breach torture, state parties, in this case, Netherlands and Canada, have the right to bring the case to the International Court of Justice. And I'm very proud to be part of the legal team advising the government of the Netherlands on this case. In addition to your, to your expertise on legal matters, I guess you also have quite an expertise on, on sanctions. And uh, at the moment, Syria is subjected to different sanction regimes. Uh, yet so far, those sanctions didn't really fulfill their intended purpose of causing a behavioral change of the Syrian government and make it comply with UN Resolution 2254, for example. Could you elaborate on the different sanction regimes in place and what needs to happen to improve their effectiveness? So when the Syrian uprising started um, and, you know, there were more and more human rights reports coming out, including from the UN, uh, the West responded by imposing sanctions. And those were sanctions against certain sectors that uh, enabled the war machinery to go on, like the oil, uh, military equipment, uh, equipment that they need for chemical weapons, and also sanctions on specific individuals, right? Um, and that continued from 2011 up until 2020, actually 2021, because today the uh, UK actually said that they've kind of launched uh, new sanctions against certain uh, uh, individuals just today on the anniversary of the, uh, of the uprising. Yeah. Um, And the problem ha has been, I mean, th those sanctions, in a way, they do signal discontent, they send a political message, and so on. But the problem is, David, is that, in, in my opinion, these sanctions have not been leveraged enough. They're, they're a political, flexible, adaptive, leveraging tool, but they've been not used as such. They've been systematic, they've been bureaucratic, they've been taking time, and we're doing a lot of research on, uh, on this. And so we think sanctions are an incredibly powerful tool in the interim. Right. But as a long term strategy, regimes adapt. Right. They turn east. We've seen this with Cuba. We've seen this with North Korea. We've seen different African countries. They will find someone else to, to buy and sell from. And I'm, I'm, you know, the West is not is no longer the only financial system that they could use. Right. We've seen that over and over. And so if sanctions are applied for a long term and they're not kind of leveraged, they do more harm than good. But if they used as an interim tool, to leverage, to get demands, to negotiate, to put things on the table, to remove things from the table. If you do this, I list you. If you do this, I delist you. If I will not list you, if you do X, that's what sa that we believe sanctions are made for. And that's unfortunately not happening you know, by, by, by sanctioning authorities. It is more used as an accountability tool, which in a way is good, but sanctions are a political tool and they're not being used as such. Do you have an, an example, like you said, it's, it's, it's leverage. Sanctions should be used to tell the regime, like, you do this, and given you comply, we will lift the sanctions. I mean, we're actually seeing now that the EU is getting a bit more responsive to, to kind of our messages, and they've put forward, you know, saying if there's no political solution, sanctions were not lifted. And the UK actually in the Security Council also following a lot of, you know, discussions with them, we're happy to put some conditionality to lift sanctions because they're not supposed to be there for the, for, for, for the long term. Uh, but this was something, for example, that, you know, Sudan was isolated with sanctions. And then when there was a political uh, change and 
and uh, you know a reduction i would not say a, a complete elimination but a reduction of, of human rights abuses and then a willingness to engage with the international community uh, sanctions were removed from uh, from uh, from sudan and so that incentive that kind of you know negotiation is not happening enough in the case of uh, of syria uh, and they're not are kind of uh, pointing fingers and and leveraging it enough and and that's why i think it is vital for sanctions to be used by politicians, by diplomats, not just by mere, you know, bureaucrats or civil servants who, uh, you know, are doing a fantastic job enlisting people, but not would not be able to uh, negotiate. But that's actually something, David, that is not just entirely their fault, because the way sanctions are built in the EU system, they're not made for that, because you need consensus of all member states to list someone you know, or to apply sanctions just because of the internal market rules. And, you know, it is very difficult to be to, to be able to negotiate on behalf of all member states in, in that sense, which is why countries like the UK and the, uh, and, and the US now have more of a sanction leverage uh, ability. But that does not mean that the EU should not put, you know, a criteria of for these things to happen, we will end sanctions. And actually, just last week, it was very nice to see the EU finally put a statement saying, if you engage genuinely in the political process, we will we will lift sanctions. And that's something that we were waiting for. Yeah, I believe uh, creating the constant, first of all, in the EU is always a very complicated uh, matter. Perhaps one last question on, on sanctions, especially now with the Caesar Act, but also previous sanctions, they would allow for so-called secondary sanctions, that is sanctions against entities, countries that are collaborating with, in, in the case of Syria, the Assad regime. But is secondary sanctions, in your opinion, uh, a way to create a behavioral change? And so far, have they been really implemented? Because as far as I know, the Caesar Act opens this possibility, but so far only two Lebanese, for example, have been sanctioned under the Caesar Act with regard to Syria and collaboration with the Syrian regime. Yeah, I mean, you know, no, not to bring up uh, something that's irrelevant here, but my mother during her upbringing had, uh, when she was kind of raising us, also had this this view that if you do, if you have a threat and then you execute it, that no longer becomes a threat and it becomes less effective in, in that sense. And so it's good to have a threat and be able to use it when you need to not necessarily, uh, uh, you know, use it all the time. And, that, and that's the whole idea of uh, being able to leverage something. So secondary sanctions, in my opinion, are uh, a fantastic opportunity, uh, particularly in proxy wars, because as you know, David, it's, Syria is not about Syria. We've got five, officially five militaries, armies on the, flo uh, on the ground in Syria, in the field. Uh, and you've got, you know, politically far more countries involved in meddling inside Syria. And therefore, uh, secondary sanctions scare those people who are happy to work with sanctioned individuals who are, you know, in sanctioned in the first place for human rights abuses. Um, and so using that threat is quite useful and using one or two examples sends, sends the message. But you need to have the framework there in order to be able to use it. So yes, it is effective in cases of proxy wars and in case they were also leveraged. Perhaps let me address alternatives. So let's talk about opportunities for Syria beyond sanctions. What can the West and Germany in particular do to contribute to a settlement perhaps or a betterment of the situation in Syria? 
So the, the, the thing that I always found sad when I, get, when I engaged with a lot of European envoys, ministers over, over the last 10 years is this defeatist mentality. We, there's nothing we can do. You know, I was, this, is, this is Russia. This is this. This is that. And, and this makes me sad because Europe is powerful. Germany is powerful. The UK is powerful. And so, so is the US. You know, they don't. It's not necessarily a matter of, of, of what or there is nothing that we can do. You are political mites. You have diplomatic leverage on a lot of allies of the regime, Russia, Iran included. I mean, one of them is in your deal and the other one you're building a gas pipeline with. You know, you know what I mean? It's 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 not that you don't have the strength. It's whether you want to use it or not. And, you know, Russia quickly realized that it can hold Europe hostage on, on this, because if you look at it, uh, David, what happened was Russia relentlessly bombed Syria with the regime, the consequence of which you had a lot of refugee crisis into Europe, which also affected Germany and then affected elections, uh, uh, increase of the right wing, breakup of the European Union. And that is the goal of Russia, because it was it, the problem that we've also seen is that, you know, European countries have been looking at Syria as Syria, right? While Russia looks and Iran look at Syria as a card that they can play against you because we're not we're not the ones that are that, that scare Iran off or scare Russia. I, I mean I'd like to think so before going to bed, but that that's not the case. You're the threat. You're the superpowers on their borders. We're not, you know? But they're using they're testing your patience. They they break conventions that you are part of. You know, not us. They break treaties and human rights treaties and the European Convention on Human Rights and so and so many other treaties that sends a message to Europe that I can break the laws that you and I agreed on and I can get away with it. I can export refugees by bombing the hell out of their country to you and, and you know, cause instability politically. And I can, you know, make people so desperate in Syria by killing their fathers, raping their mothers so that they turn extreme and create an extremist problem that you, Europe, will also have to deal with. And that's something that, you know, unfortunately, Europe did not cl click on so quickly enough. And when it did, it did not act. So it's clear that it's not just about Syria. So the first step is for Europe not to see the situation as a Syrian situation, but be able to see and put influence on the proxies. Syria should be part of the nuclear deal. It should be part of any issue and deal, future deal with Russia for your own benefit, not for mine, for the reasons that I just talked about. Um, so that's the first step. And that also includes sanctions on those countries because they really care about, about these, these matters. Um, then there's the diplomatic power because you've got a lot of allies in the region, you know, or let's say countries of interest like Lebanon, you know, uh, Turkey, I know sensitive, but influential in Syria, Iraq, Jordan. So, you know, we're not far away. And the countries that are kind of normalizing are also in the Gulf, which you have to have influence over uh, and, uh, and so on. So also using your diplomatic power. But I think the main thing is not seeing Syria as Syria, but seeing the proxies that are involved and putting pressure on the proxies over Syria for your own good. Like Russia, perhaps also the EU must see Syria not as an isolated conflict, but rather as a geopolitical matter or conflict. And also probably Europe has to become aware of its perhaps untapped sway in, in Syria. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because this defeatist mentality is, is just shocking to me. You know, if you guys don't have the power, then who does? <laughs> Absolutely. 
And like, how do you think uh, will the situation develop? I mean, in Syria, it's quite bleak at the moment. How do you see Syria's near future? You know, it was. It, it's good that I'm not a gambler because, uh, you know, otherwise I would have lost all my money on different bets that I've put of, of where Syria could become in the next uh, or you know, throughout the 10 years. But if I would make an educated guess as to where, where things are going. So the regime is suffering big time. The economy is crashing, which also hurts the people that we, you know, think the regime is holding hostage in, in Syria because all of a sudden it found the millions, hundreds of millions to fund its war, but now is unable to feed its own people and just blaming it on sanctions, which is not true. Um, it's struggling. Their allies are struggling. Iran is struggling. Russia is struggling. And Europe and, West, and the West are holding a front saying we're not going to engage with you unless there is a political solution. To the conflict, uh, we have elections coming up. Uh, it would be very interesting whether you know Russia could use this opportunity to save face and say, okay, Bashar is not running. I'm just going to give him a really nice, you know, resort in Sochi, him and the first lady and their two children, uh, and then we can have some sort of election in Syria. In 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 a way, that could be one uh, opportunity to 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 do something. Uh, the other opportunity is, you know, the country will keep going to its knees more and more until, you know, something drastic happens, maybe along the lines of uh, inside the palace or something along these lines, you know, because it cannot continue the way uh, that the way it is. You mentioned the elections and they are imminent. I mean, they're going to take place in the second half of April or early May. Do you think uh, Russia is currently interested or, or able to implement a change or will it rather be the third re-election of uh, President Bashar al-Assad? I mean, if Russia wants to do something, David, it does. We've seen that. I mean, I've seen them in the Constitutional Committee in Geneva when they meet, you know, the Syrians follow Russian orders. I don't know if you've seen the videos or if your kind of listeners did as well where, you know, Putin would visit Syria, but, you know, some kind of random general would hold Bashar's hand in order not, not for him to follow Putin when he's giving him a speech to tell, to tell him to wait. He's being treated as a subordinate, you know, and he is, he is a subordinate. You cannot, you know, he's, he's, he's sold his soul and the country and its assets and its oil and its ports to Russia. If Russia wants something to happen in Syria, they can. The question is, what will Russia get out of it? Right. And that's what they're trying to leverage with the West and trying to negotiate on. And my feeling is that they're waiting to see what the position of the new administration will be on uh, on, uh, on on Syria, which is something that is not clear yet. Uh, you, you mean the you mean the Biden administration? Yes. OK. Um, if it's going to be a continuation of the Obama administration, which might happen, um, you know, it might be a disaster for Russia because they, I don't think they can hold on much longer. Ibrahim, thanks a lot. I think we have reached the end of our podcast for today. Thanks for being with us and for sharing your insights. Thank you so much, David, for, for hosting me and, uh, and I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thanks to our audience as well. You have been listening to the podcast from Beirut to Baghdad and I hope to see you again soon. If you have enjoyed this episode, please click subscribe us and RSS feed us in your favorite podcasting app. Stay tuned on the topics and please follow us as well on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn at Kas Syria Iraq, as well as on Instagram at Kas in Beirut. Mm-hmm.